Hello and welcome into another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. The Esports Network podcast is sponsored by Technology Game Changers. Check them out at tgcplay.com, linked right below this show. Today, we are talking to a longtime favorite of the podcast, Manny Onicle. He's founder of The Next Level, a publication and newsletter covering the business of esports, and Versus, an esports consulting agency. He's a longtime industry veteran with nearly two decades of experience in the space, working for companies like Xbox, EA, and Major League Gaming, among others. Manny's been a go-to guest on this show, especially back in spring when we did multiple episodes covering viewership of esports events on linear TV while sports were shut down. Manny, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. We have a sponsor now. You notice that? Mm-hmm. That's great. You're moving up in the world. Honestly, it's been great. Yeah, didn't have a sponsor last spring. So uh, shout out to Technology Game Changers, our first sponsor. We're loving it. That's fantastic. Today, we are going to be talking about Venn. And for people unfamiliar, Venn is a new network started in part by Ariel Horn. He's an experienced producer who is the leader in some of Riot Games' broadcasts, including one that won him a sports Emmy for the 2017 League of Legends World's Finals. Before that, he was a producer on Olympics broadcasts for major networks uh, like NBC, I believe, where he also won some sports Emmys. So to say, he's a guy who knows what he's doing. He left Riot to start Venn, an experimental new broadcast channel filled with original programming. And it hasn't worked. Manny recently published a newsletter titled, Why No One Is Watching Venn. And we're going to look at some of the reasons for the channel's lack of success. And before we get into that conversation, I think it's important to say that we aren't reveling in this failure by any means. Some of my friends and really good people in the industry are hosting shows over there. But the fact of the matter is, viewership is not just bad, it's abysmal. We're recording this on Tuesday, December 15th, and you'll be hearing it on Friday, but I can guess not much has changed. Right now on Venn's YouTube, with 15,000 subscribers, the video posted six hours ago has 42 views. 4-2, that's it. Videos from the day before have 88 and 89 views. Only one of Venn's last 30 published videos from the last week and a half cracked 1,000 views in total. I pulled up Twitch, and they're live with a rebroadcast, so it's not new live content, but only 18 people are watching currently. To be honest, my brother's friends get more being bad at Call of Duty. (laughs) So so I guess that's the best place to start, Manny. Can you summarize why it is you think no one is watching Venn that you laid out in that newsletter? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, many reasons for that. You know, I think I'd also like to start off with, uh, you know, how you did in terms of, you know, we're not obviously, you know, reveling in failure and wishing, you know, uh, bad things on other people in the industry. Uh, we all want to see, uh, you know, gaming and esports content, you know, not only survive, but actually thrive, you know. So it is uh, unfortunate when something comes along with, you know, great promise and, and doesn't deliver. And, you know, as I had laid out uh, in the article and, and newsletter is, I think there's a couple of uh, different areas that you could look at into why uh, the production of Venn um, hasn't really succeeded. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the numbers. Again, uh, when you look at, you know, their Wednesday live show, uh, which is broadcast on Twitch and different um, OTT platforms as well, you know, the viewership is absolutely low. You know, I've checked multiple times since I've even posted that article. And sometimes I don't see more than, you know, 100 people watching. Um, so how, how is that really possible uh, in today's day and age and also during a time of COVID where Americans are really consuming more content than they're ever done before? So I think you can break it down in, into a few different ways. Um, I think first uh, and foremost uh, is competition. 
Um, you know, again, going back, you know, a decade ago, you obviously had things like uh, G4 TV and things that were kind of new relative to the space. But, you know, fast forward to 2020, obviously with the explosion of gaming and esports content starting about five years ago, everyone in the mother is playing this space. So you have, you know, dedicated media channels specific to gaming and esports like a Jinx TV and ESR TV. Uh, some of those are based in Europe as well, and uh, carried on satellite channels. Uh, so you have dedicated channels there. Then you have your traditional uh, sports media coverage, for example, like ESPN or The Score and, you know, Barstool is obviously had a great year as well. You know, they have Barstool Gaming and Hooligans and, you know, they're obviously playing the space. Then you obviously have your dedicated, you know, esports coverage like Daily Dot and Dexerto. And then obviously TV networks, as we talked about earlier this year, such as, you know, Turner's had E-League for a while. ESPN's had many, many events on there as well as Disney. And then what we saw with Fox Sports uh, with uh, NASCAR earlier this year, you know, they had really great showing. So that's just from like a media perspective. And then you then you're not even talking about, for example, watching League of Legends, Worlds, uh, content operators like ESL and all the numerous events that they pull on. And then finally, furthermore, even teams like 100 Thieves or FaZe Clan, which do their own tournaments, obviously release tons of content. So starting off, you're entering into a completely crowded market. So I think that was going to be very challenging to start off. So with that being said, if you're entering into a crowded market, you're going to have to create something that's going to be differentiate yourself from your competition. And I think this is a big area that Venn failed in as well. So when I looked at their first analysis of their eight shows, the content is primarily, I would probably put it in the gaming talk show category. They had two shows that are slightly different, which is called Dare Package and Looking for Gains, which is a fitness show, which actually has been canceled. So if you're going to, again, uh, enter a crowded space and your content is actually new, you're basically putting on gaming talk shows, which has had a great showing thriving audience on Twitch. It's nothing exceptional and nothing new. Now, again, to be fair uh, with Ben, with COVID, they accelerated their schedule. They moved it up about a month. And while they have a very large studio in California, excuse me, they were supposed to build out the studio in New York City as well, and that would have helped them from production side. Because when you watch the Wednesday live shows, there's actually a gap in the programming. And when I spoke to a few insiders at Ben, the reason they told me that was it took actually several hours for them to change out the sets in between shows. So when you're doing kind of live programming uh, production run on one day, it's kind of hard to take that big break. And I'm sure the New York studio would help. So, you know, we'll have to give, you know, Ben a little bit credit on that side. But again, really nothing new from a content perspective. Then the next area to furthering that, continue the uh, comment on content is production value. So if you look at the shows, you know, they have a 50,000 square foot studio um, in LA, uh, you know, really fancy set, you know, all the cool latest technology you'd see with a typical like TV broadcast show. I mean, almost probably better than the first set that even ESPN probably had. Now, here's the question that, you know, you would ask is, you know, again, you mentioned, you know, Errol's background from obviously the NBC Sports, as well as the great stuff that he did uh, with Riot and you know, really fantastic work on production. And then also with Ben Cousin in terms of his history with Vivendi Universal Games. So they've always said they want to create, you know, the new MTV for gaming. And I just think that's a very antiquated sort of analogy to use in to terms of kind of 2020 and where we are in terms of, uh, you know, either streaming, linear, binge watching, mobile, social content, however you want to 
put all those things together, it seems very, very old. And, you know, the comparison that I had made is if you look at, for example, a gaming talk show and having a bunch of hosts on there, which, again, you have host costs, you have, uh, you know, makeup, wardrobe, et cetera, that always comes on with that. Then look at someone like, you know, Jake Lucky, who's had a great year with what he's created with esports talk. So it's essentially, you know, one camera, him sitting at basically a desk and, you know, essentially like a green screen to show uh, whatever content he's talking about. And it works because, you know, he understands the platform. He's built up an audience. He's really funny on Twitter. And then when news breaks, he's he's basically able to get something out in a very quick manner, but still looks uh, polished and, and very, very good. So, you know, the, the question on, you know, why do you need so much production value in is, is, is questionable. And then the last two points that I would get to is, you know, right now with them saying, hey, come to then whatever platform you're going to watch on, uh, during Wednesday we produce the new shows, you know, it's essentially trying to bring appointment viewing again back into the age of 2020. And, you know, I would argue that if this year, like, is appointment viewing really is it necessary and you know does it work you, know, you could pretty much argue that it's really one show that's working and that's probably the mandalorian and again you're talking you know a huge amount of fan base with star wars an amazing production by john favreau and you know just, they really nailed nailed it and you know i would probably argue that's really the one uh content piece or tv show that really works for appointment viewing in today's day and age and finally you know i think last but not least is that you know what we've really seen between i guess you know people who are either creating content on twitch and youtube you know or influencers on tiktok or whatever platforms you want to talk about is you know creators are really the key to content nowadays uh it doesn't really take you know massive massive million dollar budgets to really bring audience in is that you know if you have a unique voice if you're able to connect with your audience or if you're able to distribute your content on the platforms that people are engaging it really works you know again you look at examples like david dobrik you know mr beast ninja dr disrespect the amelia sisters you know what they've basically done is be able to build up a very very large amounts of audience in dedicated platforms by really you know sticking to their unique POVs and be able to do that. So, you know, my very, very long answer to your question is I'd probably point out those five different reasons for probably the main areas why Ben uh, has not been able to succeed. That was pretty, uh, that was pretty over uh, consuming, overarching right there. And there's, you know, not, nothing like this is a, is a one reason fits all sort of deal. I have a couple Follow-ups, you mentioned appointment viewing. Absolutely true. The only thing people are really watching is The Mandalorian every Friday. Uh, there is like, in the gaming world, I would say maybe Fortnite's live events uh, are something you might be able to actually consider appointment viewing, where Epic Games is like, hey, season ends now, watch this. And people are yeah. like, okay. Uh, but it's it's few and far between. And then you also mentioned the move over to uh personality driven and individual driven fandom that's what people care about you know mr beast has a whole team behind him but his channel is branded him same with a lot of these other streamers a lot of these other content creators they have a whole team and ven's most successful show is the show with sasha gray the only uh the woman with an infinite start but probably <laughs> the only name uh that you might recognize straight up not no slight to aaron simon who's an amazing person or anything anybody else but that's what people have gravitated to through ven's programming is the name that they recognize and that's uh something that they're struggling with this isn't the day where you just turn on mtv and you're like oh cool this person's on mtv i care about them uh you need to sell 
the individual. It's the shows on ESPN that work are the ones that sell the individual personalities. You can't just expect people to turn on to uh, SportsCenter even these days and age where it's like if you change the hosts a lot, of they don't care as much. They want to watch Neil Everett. Sure, but there's a big difference there in how people are consuming content. And I think the rise of TikTok has been uh, really highlighted that and how people care about individual content creators a lot more. It, for, for sure. And I think just a, is that, you know, if you, you've made a great point in terms of kind of <clears throat> the host outside of the show. And, you know, I always call back to like even like Total Request Live, you can argue that like Carson Daly is pretty much kind of the face of that show. Right. So going back to that is, you know, another kind of mistake that I think Ven made is that they didn't essentially, you know, give the face of that creator or the host kind of really the branding around the show but furthermore is that they didn't really do anything from an external marketing perspective as well so if you look at for example you know their social media channels there's really not that much action on it even you know the hosts haven't you know kind of built up you know their followers or their brand outside of whenever they're hosting uh their show uh whenever it's going live you know for that week so i think you know that's been very very challenging as well and even you know going back to the appointment viewing and as we mentioned you know, the Mandalorian is even technically you couldn't even call that even appointment viewing because the show is released on a Friday. So you can actually watch it whatever you want. That's just one of the latest episodes are obviously held back, you know, by the Disney gatekeepers. So, you know, I think you definitely nailed a great point in terms of, you know, does the brand for a show nowadays reflect on the actual show itself? or the individual creators and, you know, especially sports. Um, obviously sports is probably the only live appointment viewing you really see. And the NFL drives usually the top like 48 of the 50 shows uh, for the year from a ratings perspective. But if you look at what sports has done from a sort of a, you know, very quick viewing, snackable content, watched on mobile, there are so many of these many companies that spread up in the space. And then going back to your point, you can pretty much argue that, you know, if you mention Barstool, people probably think about, you know, Portnoy as really the face of that brand. So, you know, I think that's been very important to build up a media brand nowadays. Yeah, media is becoming personalized. And that's, you know, a positive for some people. It's something that it's just the reality in the social media age. And you mentioned how Jake Lucky's been very successful. A lot of it through his jokes on on Twitter. You know, that's a part of making that show successful. It's his constant uh, Twitter jokes, his, his banter with different people. And then the actual content itself, you don't need a million dollar studio to be successful in this space. You know, even uh, for people that have those resources, like I think about uh, the Eavesdrop podcast with Hex, where this is yeah. a guy who's a co-CEO of NRG. NRG has the access to studios they want to. They recorded in a random boardroom. And it, <laughs> it does 45,000 views, 50,000 views, 60,000 views pretty consistently. Uh, it's just sort of like a video podcast, a video talk show. And so, you know, content is moving to this other realm. And it, I always think back to an interview I did back in spring with the creators of Fuck Jerry, which is their literal name, so you can't censor me on this one. Uh, it's the name of their <laughs> company. I, it's uh, and they are for people unfamiliar. They are meme creators or more meme distributors, I should say. Uh, very very popular on Instagram. They talk about this thing called try hard content, and a lot of the high profile failures can be traced back to this. The younger generation, the term try hard has a negative connotation for people that take games way too seriously uh 
they're also called sweats. A lot of times this became a big thing in Fortnite after a year or two, and people got too good. It was like, ah, oh, these tryhards are ruining the game. Well, the same thing happens in the content world where if the content is perceived as being too polished, as being too, uh, I don't know what the, what the right word for it is entirely, but basically just they're doing too much. People don't enjoy watching it. They want to see people modeling what's coming out of their own lives. And we've seen that with the rise of TikTok. These are just people who set up a phone on a, on a, a tripod with a ring light. That's, that's all it takes. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, you nailed another point. You know, again, you know, what you talked about on the production value side is that, you know, nowadays, I think maybe even, yeah, the word is challenging, but maybe you could even say it's too slick, you yeah. know, and it comes across as fake in sort of this era of sort of authenticity. You know, you mentioned, you know, Hex's podcast, you know, I mean, you can even point to, for example, uh, Nate Shot's podcast and, you know, what he's done with that. And, you know, he's, they're in the, you know, 100 Thieves studio and there's a nice screen behind there. But, you know, when it's just basically like him and, and Jackson, you know, talking into a mic, you know, being recorded by, you know, a really nice uh, uh, camera, that's basically it, right? And, you know, Nate Shot and Hex, they have you know, extremely deep uh, followers for many, many years. And, you know, they've established their brand for a long time. I mean, look at basically what, you know, Immortals did to essentially destroy the optic brand you know then after after a while they basically you know sold off all the teams you know sold back the brand and you know when hex got you know optic back and you know they were able to obviously uh you know rename the team and get this back involvement i mean you could see like what happened like essentially the the, the twitter following for the team essentially overtook established you know cdl teams so it you know again it really goes back to that like you know Creators are the key. They have the built-in audience, and they're authentic to that audience. And you know, if you're able to kind of stick to that main point, you know, I think you'll be very, very successful. But yeah, I mean, in the age of essentially where you have a, a supercomputer in your pocket, which is not only a supercomputer, but it's a device that allows you to not only create content. You know, iPhones have extremely good cameras now. You have built-in sort of editing functions within these platforms, and then you're able to distribute it like immediately. Like this is pretty much go back 25 years ago, and someone would say you're crazy if you thought that a individual could basically do this. So now that essentially the you know the golden keys to media have been taken away by large companies and now put into the hands of the individuals um we now have the power to basically do that you know so the age of essentially you know creating these huge massive uh sets and sort of you know hosts and everything else you know is is pretty much dying away you make a great point there too is like they have the resources and there's slick is a good word for it because it's not like the younger generation doesn't like opulence or the perception of luxury. You look at things like Mr. Beast or David Dobrik, where they're driving around Lambos and uh, they they live in these mansions or like so much of the hype house, the sway house, phase clans, mansions. All that content is filled in these like super nice, super gaudy places. People still want to see that, but they don't like it coming across through the content they consume. It's more like vlog style personal filming in these really awesome places. It's a it's an odd calculus and it's no wonder that people are struggling to figure out how to get it right. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's a really uh, you know kind of unique way to like look at that is that you know the uh, the younger audience is you know absolutely you know still fascinated by 
uh, you know, luxury goods. You, know, you can see, obviously, you know, with the selection of the cars, going to the fashion, uh, you're seeing, you know, influencers and content creators wearing like, you know, six-figure watches. Uh, so there's definitely not a disinterest in the finer things of life. That's definitely for sure. But then, if, but then when you take a step back at it, that even though all these, you know, products and items and, you know, them bragging, inside their videos, it's not distributed in this sort of, okay, opening with like a slick montage with some music and then, you know, you're cutting to someone sitting at a desk or, you know, this set or something like that. It's still, even though they're showcasing all these, you know, extremely expensive things, it's still, the content is being created in a very sort of DIY, you know, down to earth, earth manner. And, you know, going back to that, you know, I think the area of sort like connection with the audience is, you know, if I'm watching someone, you know, make a video uh, on TikTok or whatever, and, you know, I'm engaging with that, I can think to myself, hey, if they did this, why can't I do this as well? So there's some of that connection with, you know, I think that content going back to when things come out too prepackaged and too slick and you know i would say probably almost even you know a corporate stamp on it that's when things you know really stray away from that you know the dreaded word of authenticity which everyone you know wants to use but very few people are able to nail down yeah the corporate stamp is the best way of uh of putting it all together is it's all the different things that go into that you know you have uh 100 Thieves has great video editors, but they're throwing in like kind of comical explosions where it's like explosion, explosion, explosion. And it's funny <laughs> because you can see how it's being made while it's being made. It doesn't feel like it's all this team all designed to try and capture you. And I think there's some interesting parallels to another high profile failure this year. And that was in the TV and film world with, uh, you know, Venn has raised a considerable amount of money, I believe over $40 million over two different funding rounds. Uh, but Quibi raised two billion dollars and i think there are some parallels here but before i give my takes uh, can you draw any parallels between what happened with quibi you know a network that ran about four or five months blamed the pandemic for shutting down and then completely is gone you know it had a less than an entire year of uh of operation and is gone and then so can you draw any parallels with sort of that thing that happened with quibi and what is happening with Venn right now yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it is a very fair comparison. And obviously, if you look at obviously in the space of, you know, what are new, you know, media and content companies, you know, it's really Quibi and Ben that probably would stand out from this year. And, you know, the Quibi raised, you know, $1.75 billion, which is a enormous oh amount of money. Uh, but again, when you're obviously, uh, you know, Katzenberg and Meg, you know, you obviously can can get that amount of money from investors based on the history. And that's um, that's unfortunately how venture capital works. And, you know, the fact that Quibi lasted less than COVID with that much money is, you know, is pretty astonishing. But, you know, it's, it's very, very clear on why Quibi was going to be a failure with launch. And they made some critical mistakes, which are almost ludicrous when you think about, you know, Katzenberg's background in media and kind of seeing where the shift of media has basically gone. And the many mistakes they made is, you know, first and foremost is that I believe when they first launched, you weren't able to actually take you know, even screenshots of the programming on your phone. So because they didn't want to obviously, uh, you know, for copyright restrictions is enable people to capture that, 
capture clips or photos. Now, if you think about today's age of social media and sharing, that just sounds you know absolutely bonkers. Even again, going back to the Mandalorian example, when the first show first premiered for season one, you know initially you know everyone's you know sending out you know tweets and pictures or whatever memes of Baby Yoda, and Disney was trying to actually clamp down on that initially. And then they realized that obviously this is an enormous amount of just free marketing. So, you know, not being able to obviously, you know, share anything, I think was a crucial mistake. Number two is that, again, they went, they wanted to bring back appointment viewing, which we've talked about, which, you know, absolutely does not work in today's day and age. So I think that was definitely challenging. Um, and then finally, again, going back to what we've talked about with sort of, you know, a corporate stamp and slick production is, you know, they had extremely high profile uh, you know, actors and personalities and celebrities, you know, have their interview shows, Kevin Hart, numerous different people, you know, so they spent an enormous amount of money on talent. Then they obviously, you know, produce, you know, very, very slick type programming that you'd probably see on, you know, a major network or a cable channel many, many years ago. So, you know, you look at the fact that you couldn't, you know, share any of the content, which takes away any virality or any free marketing. You have to be able to, uh, willing to stick to appointment viewing and not being able to binge watch the shows or watch them, you know, whenever you want. And then it's like going back to, you know, we are talking about very, very established, you know, some, you know, I would say, I won't say old, but let's say they're older than the generation that I think Libby was trying to reach. It just seems, you know, completely, completely far-fetched. And, you know, I think so that was very, very challenging. And I think, you know, going back to one thing, another mistake that I think then did in terms of like, what are you really trying to be? You know, Quibi was trying to be a few different things, but not Netflix, but mobile, but then you can't share anything. So what's the point is that Venn has is essentially has a Jekyll and Hyde complex, which is that they're trying to be a linear network, which is okay, we have programming on Wednesday between these set hours. And then they're also trying to be a streaming network. Now, those two things are, are very, very different because, you know, the content is, is very, very different. So, you know, I think that's that's very, very challenging. And now that with Ben's second round of funding essentially coming from a TV-based network, you know, you're probably going to see that content shift to more linear than streaming. Now, is Ben content going to work for regional TV networks? I would probably question, you know, that as well. But, you know, again, that's, you know, for, for next start to deal with. But, you know, I think, you know, going back to the, the main question is, you know, Quibi had lots of issues initially, and even many people, when they first announced their program, were like, what are you guys doing? This isn't going to work. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, there was a great deal of, of schadenfreude around, you know, Quibi's closing. But, you know, unfortunately, it's sort of those things like, it was almost obvious to anyone who likes even remotely involved in media uh, in today's age. One of the uh, funniest, the Quibi is going to be such an interesting side note from uh, as we look back on this, like five, 10 years of the future. Remember that Quibi thing? One of the funny things that I'll always take away is how much money they invested into TikTok advertising. You could not open up TikTok without being greeted with a Quibi ad, at least for my algorithm, uh, for months and TikTok, who, you know, perceivably would be one of their big competitors, Quibi and TikTok going head to head. TikTok was like, yeah, give us all your money. We're so confident that these ads are not going to, to resonate at work that we'll just take all your money and place all these ads all over our platform. And then you're going to fail anyway. 
com completely. I, I thought that was humorous as well. And the other area I think I could like consistently saw Quibi ads were um, on Instagram, right. like in between stories, right? And you're like, wait, this is not like this is a direct competitor, and it goes against your entire programming content model it makes absolutely no sense right yeah hey if you're on instagram i'm sure you'll like these shows that you then can't share on instagram <laughs> absolutely genius level stuff here yeah i mean social media is changing everything and people who don't see what's working are consistently befuddled and like you mentioned the the quibi founders are two of the most well-regarded executives in tv uh, ever and same thing with with Ven, Ariel Horn was one of the most well-regarded producers that esports had ever seen. And it just, you know, nobody's immune from uh, failing, in, in especially when it comes to multi-platform live programming. Uh, and the gaming world has had a ton of these failures. So I think that's kind of where I want to wrap up here is why are people so fixated on this one and two Will it ever work? We're seeing G4 come back next year. They haven't entirely announced what their plan is, how it's going to be successful. Uh, so, you know, that's my that's my final question for you is why are people so fixated on this content model? Will it ever work, especially as it relates to G4's return? Yeah, very, very good question to wrap it up, Mitch. I think, you know, one thing is that, you know, going back, like taking a step back again and kind of looking this from a, you know, either an investor viewpoint or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you look at it again on paper, right? Errol, again, nothing to take away from his production experience. You know, did some great things with NBC Sports and, you know, the ME one for, you know, Riot's production of Worlds. I mean, that was an absolutely fantastic product. Then you obviously talk about Ben, you know, from his experience on the game side. So when you look at it, like on just like a piece of paper, hey, there's two execs who are, have experience in both sports production and gaming. Gaming and esports is, you know, a huge, big thing. Content is obviously being rapidly consumed here in the U.S. Like one plus one plus one equals nine, essentially. So it kind of makes sense when you look at it on paper. So you can kind of see why, you know, they were able to get the funding, why they're able to get a second round of funding, even when their numbers, uh, you know, were a little bad, essentially. So, you know, kind of talk about it there. And I think that's why people are you know, then trying to sometimes, you know, rep replace the wheel when it doesn't necessarily need to be there. So, you know, I think that's, you know, you can sort of like, hey, why were they able to get this off? And you can kind of understand it there. So, but, you know, the next question I think is, you know, really important is like, well, what's G4 going to do when they, you know, return next year? But I think you know, what's really interesting is that one is that they've been very quiet about what their plans are. I think that that's a good and that's an interesting move. But if you look at what G4 did the other day, it was a couple of weeks ago is they did, they had a, um, a live stream on Twitch uh, to talk about, you know, one of the hosts kind of coming back to for next year's launch. And it did, you know, astonishing amount of numbers. And I think that goes back to, you know, that channel that hasn't existed for a while has a very strong user base and fan base built in. And, you know, then didn't have that. Quibi didn't have that. So, you know, you're starting from, you know, much lower uh, baseline, obviously. So I think the one thing, you know, if I had to be, give one recommendation and you know this is almost like a no-brainer and i'm sure g4 realizes this is that you know essentially you know center your content 
around your creators and your hosts and make that the brand and then obviously able to you know spread your content and you know be able to spread that message you know through multiple platforms and not actually have you know one singular destination and even if you go back to you know the old g4 shows like I, I still remember Attack of the Show. I still remember like Adam Sessor and like the host like that. And those guys made the actual show. So I think if they're able to kind of nail that model, I think it'll be very interesting. But I think, you know, the question still remains that, you know, we've touched upon many times on this conversation is that, you know, how are they going to be able to put out this content, you know, essentially coming from Comcast? So are they going to be able to remove that corporate stamp? So I think we'll be able to see. But if they go back to kind of G4's original roots, you know, which is host-driven, you know, really fun, unique content, you know, I think they could have a, a place to play. But it'll be very interesting to watch. Uh, you know, and they obviously have huge learning lessons with both Ven and Quibi this year. Yeah, they do have that benefit of nostalgia, which is... We mentioned how Mandalorian is the one thing that's working as appointment viewing. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, Disney investors meeting, they announced all these new series. It's Star Wars and Marvel. Even Indiana Jones was thrown in there. There's a Buzz Lightyear movie coming out. And while we don't know how you know one Mandalorian show being successful does not mean that their new 10 series, like Droid Story and all these other things they're doing, uh, are all going to be successful... But nostalgia still works, and both Ven and Quibi were new, and it's a little bit harder to get people there. People have fond memories of G4, like you mentioned. As they come back, you know, I'm going to have to give uh, them a shot, of course, because G4 is a classic. It's a gaming classic. It's from my, my days in the childhood. And so maybe that nostalgia factor gets there and helps sell it. You know, it's worked for other franchises in the past, but uh, like you said, they some high-profile failures right now, and ostensibly... G-Force content is probably going to be somewhat similar to Vents, uh, just in terms of what they're covering, gaming talk shows, uh, at least if it is the G4 of the past. Yeah, the one last thing I would, I would add, Mitch, is that, you know, going back to the nostalgia point, and I think that's a really good one, is that, you know, I would say look at it, you know, from this point of view. Like, for example, if you're going to Netflix, you're more than likely, you know, you're you're searching for something new, whether it's, for example, you know, a new episodic show like The Queen's sure. Gambit or a show or a movie that's, for example, like 999 just got released or Triple Nine got released last week. You know, that's obviously just exclusive on the on Netflix platform. It's something new. But then when you talk about Disney, for example, now Disney's essentially doing the opposite, which is you're searching for something that's old and familiar or nostalgic that's why they basically are you know putting out like 15 star wars shows five marvel shows bringing out you know a buzz lightyear and you know doing live action versions of like pinocchio and mulan and you know 101 dalmatian so it's everything <laughs> that you're actually familiar with so it's old content where netflix is new so i think that's a really interesting way of how disney is Disney Plus has differentiated themselves, and I think they've done a really fantastic job. And if you look at, you know, what they've done from acquiring uh, subscribers, I mean, they've actually blown it out of the water. Yeah, there's no question that Disney Plus has been uh, a roaring success. You know, not just The Mandalorian, but uh, their entire platform, how they've gained people in. And, uh, you know, these these series are a whole nother uh, level, but you know, people are going to give them a shot at the very least. And so maybe there was a window where people will, will happily consume this content. If you uh, 
uh, created this, if you got people involved in your franchise and caring about your franchise early on, it still works. And now Netflix is creating all these new worlds, creating all these other shows, uh, and people are interested in those. So yeah, it's really, that's it's such a great point of what people are looking for when they visit different platforms and how that changes pretty drastically, even though I'm sure a lot of people are both Netflix and Disney Plus subscribers, but maybe they're looking for two different things when they visit those platforms. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think you could really just go back to that new and old point to kind of look at that. And, you know, that's why Netflix, you know, is drawing new stuff and Disney's really looking at, you know, their their IP and their brand. I mean, you could even I would, I would you know, argue outside of potentially uh, Google buying YouTube and Facebook buying Instagram for, I mean, probably the, some of the best billion dollar buys, you know, ever in terms of return over time. But you can easily make the argument that Disney buying Star Wars and, and Lucasfilm and Marvel are potentially the best content acquisitions in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got to throw Amazon acquiring Twitch in there as well. It's uh, uh yeah, for sure. A yeah, lot of, a lot of big moves. And, uh, I was actually just listening to a podcast, um, uh, with Mark Merrill and Brandon Beck, How I Built This. They appeared on NPR's How I Built This. Uh, and they were talking about the sale to Tencent. And it just reminded me, $400 million. And the NPR host is like, and since that sale in 2011, League of Legends has made $10 billion. <laughs> like, oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that's unrelated. But it just reminded me of that because I just listened to that segment like uh like an hour ago. I'll plug that podcast too. I probably should be plugging other podcasts, but go listen to that. I'm not getting Mark Merrill and Brandon back on this show. So uh, y'all can go right. listen to that one. All right, Manny, let's wrap it up there. Uh, be sure to follow Manny at Manny Onicle. Subscribe to the Next Level newsletter by going to tnl.media. You'll be able to find these links on his guest page below. Manny, anything else you want people looking out for? Follow in, check it out from your end. Uh, no, you know, again, always appreciate chatting with you, Mitch. You know, love what you've done with the show and, you know, always happy to come back on. We're going to take you up on that. I promise that. Uh, and this feels like an interesting segue. I'm also going to promote The Gamer Hour, which is our new show with Chris Puckett. It is similar. It's a studio show from Reuters Studio in Times Square. Uh, but I think one of the key differences in this show has been... Chris Puckett and him bringing a built-in audience and a built-in fan base, much like Eavesdrop, much like the Nate Shot at Courage Show. We are seeing pretty solid viewership on those episodes. And our most recent one is with Zadie Wolf, our uh, second musician on the show. Zadie Wolf is also the singer of that intro song that has been added to the show uh, in the last few months on the Esports Minute, the Esports Network podcast, and the College Esports Quick Take. So if you enjoy that song, check out Chris Puckett interviewing Zadie Wolf on the Gamer Hour YouTube channel. You'll enjoy it, I promise. And it's uh, it's doing pretty well out there. So we appreciate all the support because it's certainly not a given uh, to have these shows succeed as we've talked about for the last 40 minutes. I'll leave it at that. All right, have a good one, everyone. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday with another interview uh, with a top-level guest in esports. Let me check my schedule real quick. It is with Sportquake about marketing and advertising strategies in sports and esports and how they're overlapping. So be on the lookout for that on Monday. Oh, and don't forget the Esports Network podcast is presented by Reuters and is sponsored by Technology Game Changers. Check them out at tgcplay.com, linked right below the show. Have a great weekend, everyone.